We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of the service, and so I trust between now and then your heart will be prepared for that. The Lord Jesus said we're to eat and drink in remembrance of Him, and He actually taught that we're to do this until He returns. And so it's our reminder that salvation is by grace, through faith in Him, not what we do. It's Him shedding His blood and offering His body to be sacrificed. But He is coming again to make all things that are wrong right, and it should be a reminder to us of that as well. Speaking of His return, our Easter text today is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not Acts. It's not 1 Corinthians 15. It's not 2 Corinthians 5. And I could go on and on. It'll be a non-traditional text, but it's a resurrection text. And it looks forward to his return. And so it will be from the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can find Revelation chapter 1. Notice I didn't say the book of Revelations. There isn't one in the Bible. It's called the book of Revelation. I ran into someone who visited the church one time and they said, I don't want to come back to Omaha Bible Church because you never preach on Revelations. And I thought, well, you're such a Bible scholar. You don't know that there is no such thing in the book of the Bible or the book of Revelations. It's the, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's it's all about his return and his greatness and his grandeur for his people, as well as against the enemies of his people. And so let's look at Revelation chapter one, verses four to seven. Revelation one, verse four says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who was to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So it is a letter from the Trinity because we have the Father described in a unique way. We have the sevenfold Holy Spirit that's taken from the Old Testament uh, described as well. And then also from Jesus Christ. And we're going to focus on Jesus Christ, the, thir the third member. And as we do so this morning, we're going to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus, according to this text? What's the right response to Jesus? What does he deserve? How should we respond to him? And then also, what is he going to do? Okay, so who he is, how we should respond, what he's going to do. And if you're wondering, why aren't we in Luke 24 or one of, one of those other texts? Well, for different reasons. Um, one reason would be because Jesus taught that if you don't know who he is based upon all of the Bible, then you don't really worship him the right way. So you don't have a, a full perspective. When Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, um, he was pretty critical of Samaritan worship because they only consulted certain books of the Bible, not all of the Bible. 
So if you worship God, you have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so I figured we'd better look at some other passages other than the traditional classic ones. So I want to help. Uh, perhaps I also wanted to do Revelation chapter 1 today because perhaps some of you who only come in Easter time think there are only four books of the Bible. I don't know. I thought maybe I would help you to know that... Uh, Jesus has talked about in other places, and it's really important that we know more than just Luke 24. And so out of compassion, I hope, out of care and concern for some of you who, who only visit us once in a while, we'd look at a non-traditional passage, but we would still talk about the resurrection because it really is important. And so I hope you're encouraged today. I hope your mind is stimulated. I hope your heart is stirred. I know mine certainly already has been, and I hope it will be now. So let's focus on Jesus. Who is Jesus according to this text? And we have all kinds of truth statements about Jesus. Beginning with, in verse 5, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And I didn't grow up in a Bible teaching kind of uh, home, and so I didn't learn much. And so for, for all I knew, uh, Christ was his last name, Right? And maybe some of you can identify with that. Lots of you have been Christians a long time, for a long time, and you know that's not the case. If Jesus is the Christ, it's simple but profound and extraordinary. It means he's the king. It means he's the Messiah. In the Old Testament, Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one. That's what they did with kings. Symbolically, they would acknowledge someone as the king, whether it be David or another king, they were acknowledged as the king. So they were anointed in a ceremony to show that they're the king. In the New Testament, it's not Mashiach, it's not Messiah, it's Christ, interchangeable. And so it's really a big deal. It's a massive big deal if Jesus is the Christ, because the Old Testament promised that there would one day come a king who would be able to rule and reign forever, one who would not die, one who would be able to um, not live off the work of his people, uh, not corruptible or corrupt, not taking advantage, uh, like so often is the case. No, but protecting, providing, caring for, and all of those things that a true legitimate king would do. And planet earth has never seen one, right? Even the best of kings, even in the Old Testament, the best of, talk about, we can talk about the bad ones, but even the best of kings. Some of those things we learn about, we, 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 we don't even want to talk about in church. But one day, Second Samuel chapter 7, it's called the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. One would come in the line of David and he would be able to rule and reign forever. Perfectly protecting, perfectly providing for, perfectly doing everything necessary on behalf of his people. And so if Jesus is the Christ, he's the fulfillment of that long-awaited promise. And so, you, and I don't want to get too off track here, but if you, if you think in terms of those who protect us, those who are to provide for us, those who are to care for us, if we talk about governing authorities... Sorry to even bring it up. 
even the best of them embarrass us. If history has shown us anything, it's shown us that. We need a Christ. We need a Messiah. One who is not corrupt or corruptible. One who doesn't need to be elected through compromises. One who can provide for his people even eternal life. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. What an extraordinary title for him if he is that one. And here it says, Jesus is the Christ. Well, let's move on. If we continue on in verse 5, or verse 5, chapter 1, he's also called the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 89, we won't take the time to go there, but in Psalm 89, there's this prophetic statement about a Messiah, one who would come. Okay, And in Psalm 89, as it's looking forward to that one day that would come, and no doubt Revelation 1 is drawing upon that, it talks about the sun and the moon being faithful witnesses. So as sure as the sun and the moon exist, and go up and down from our perspective, as sure as the sun and the moon, one day there will be a Christ. One day there will be a Messiah. My dad was fond of saying when we asked him a question about, you know, whether we were going to go on vacation or whether or not we were going to go eat at a certain place. And he would say, does the sun come up? It was just kind of an awkward, weird statement. But my dad was fond of saying awkward, weird statements, right? Well, does the sun come up? Well, he was saying, of course. I mean, that's a ridiculous question. As sure as the sun comes up from our perspective, absolutely that's going to happen. Well, my dad wasn't so far off. As sure as the sun and the moon are in their places, there will be a Messiah that comes one day. And it seems as if, and Bible scholars think this, and I'm going to agree, that he's borrowing upon that Psalm 89 imagery, but he's not using the sun and the moon. He's using Jesus. He's using the fact that Jesus is the Christ, and we're going to get there. He's been raised from the dead. You want to know for sure? Actually, he is the true and faithful witness. He's the one who's more certain even. He's the faithful witness that is more sure testimony from God about a one day coming, ruling and reigning, making all wrongs right. He's more trustworthy and more dependable than the sun and the moon. He's the eternal one. The one who is the God-man fascinating. So you think about the promises of the book of Revelation and his return and bringing justice and putting down injustice. And we could say, yeah, as sure as the sun and the moon, that's going to happen. No, let's ratchet things up a little bit more. In fact, a lot more. The resurrected triumphant Jesus who died and was raised from the dead, he's the true and faithful witness. And might I add, in the context of the book of Revelation, even when it doesn't seem like it, it's written to largely persecuted Christians. Even when it doesn't seem like it's the case, you don't want to know what's more sure than even the sun and the moon? Jesus. Well, what do you mean, sure? That he will provide for, protect, and meet all of the needs of his people. Okay, that's, I think that's what he's getting at. Let's keep moving. Uh, 
We come also in verse 5, and you see what I'm doing. It's not rocket science. We're just looking through these truth statements. So next on the list is the firstborn of the dead. So there we have it, firstborn from the dead. So he's not a, a defeated king, Messiah, pseudo-king Messiah. He's not a pseudo-savior, and that's overlapping. He's not that at all. After being executed by Roman execution experts, he proved that he had the power over sin. He proved he had the power over death. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 17, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 6. And we could go on. <laughs> raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. He's, it, it, it's that sure of a reality. But there's probably more to it. Because other people had been raised from the dead. First Kings chapter 17. Second Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 13. Jesus raised other people from the dead. Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 7, John chapter 11, to name some of them. Other people had been raised from the dead. Jesus, let me go out on a limb here. Jesus was not the first person ever raised from the dead. I thought I was at a Bible church. I thought the pastor believed the Bible is true. You are, and I do. I believe that is absolutely true. But the Bible itself teaches other people had been raised from the dead who would go on to have funerals. By the way, but Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. It's an interesting Greek word. You don't need to know Greek to get to heaven. Thank the Lord. But the New Testament is written in Greek and he uses the word prototokos, which is sometimes used in extra biblical literature. First place. He's the prototype, if you will. We get that English word eventually there. He's the prototokos. He's the ultimate race from the dead one. First place unrivaled, unmatched. He's that one who's been raised from the dead. And we know theologically, when we look at other passages, it makes sense that he's the prototokos because he's the one who's raised from the dead to never die again. He's the one who's raised from the dead on behalf of his people. Remember in John's gospel account, he says, though you die, you will live. And he says, believe in me, trust in me, and you will live eternal life. He's the prototokos. He's the, he's the, the ultimate victor. He's the one who said he would come and make atonement for sins. And we know that the atonement really happened because he's raised from the dead. God is satisfied with his sacrifice. He is the firstborn from the dead. And we say to that as Christians, this is, this is great news. This is wonderful. We want him to be the preeminent one raised from the dead. Colossians 1.18 says, The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, preeminent. A different translation says, have first place in everything. The author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter one, verse six says, first born into the world, let all God's angels worship him. The prototokos one, the Jesus we're here to worship today, we expect to return one day. He is worshiped by angels. He is the extraordinary one. He is more exalted than any other being. It's why we, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, worship him. It's why we trust in him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus came to earth, and I like to say, and I say it often, I'll keep saying it, 
He was not the strong, silent type. Jesus spoke. And he spoke profoundly. And he made claims that were otherwise just outrageous and unthinkable. So why should we believe him? Because what he said about himself really happened. Like destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Pretty amazing. Extraordinary, preeminent, worthy of your trust. Worthy of your confidence. Worthy of your dependence. I've put all of my eggs in that basket, so to speak. A lot of other teachers, a lot of other prophets, a lot of other gurus, mystics. And they die. And they stay dead. As a Christian, I believe everything Jesus said. About everything. For different reasons, but the biggest reason is because he's the prototokos. Even when things get hard, that's the case for me as a Christian. It's true for you if you're a Christian. Even when it gets controversial. In John chapter 6, Jesus was saying such controversial things that a lot of his followers stopped following him. Right? It wasn't good for business. It wasn't good for family holidays at the dinner table. It wasn't good for relationships or networking. But Jesus said to those who didn't leave, he said, do you want to go too? And fascinatingly enough, their response to the prototokos was, where else should we go? (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. And we all, because we're living on the other side of the resurrection, can say that with even more confidence than they did. We better keep moving. Also in verse 5, Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Also Psalm 89 inspired, if you will. Second uh, Samuel 7 inspired, if you will. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Now let's just pretend for a moment that we don't know much about the Bible and that we don't know much about the rest of what the Bible teaches. And we read that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And what should we say if we're being honest? It doesn't look like it. Right? Doesn't appear to be so. All the more reason why the people who this letter is written to, this book is written to, this revelation is given to, need to be reminded of it. Because things aren't going so well. It's not their best life now. It's not heaven on earth. They're being persecuted, facing hardships. But he's reminding them that he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, we could be here a long time and we won't be, but I'll just fill in the blanks a little bit. There's this thing that happens. It's recorded in the book of Acts. It's called the ascension. That he not only goes from earth to heaven, but he ascends. In the description that's given in the book of Acts, he ascends to a throne. And kings are on thrones where he actually rules and reigns as the ultimate one in the line of David fascinating in Acts chapter 2 as well as other texts that he is ruling that he is reigning that he is the, the it doesn't say he will be he is the ruler of kings on earth and so we 
In the book of Revelation itself, it looks forward to his return when his rule will be witnessed by all, when his rule will be, to use good biblical theological categories, it will be consummated. But make no mistake about it, John, the apostle, writing in Revelation chapter 1, wants us to know and be reminded that his kingdom has been inaugurated. He's ascended. And it might not look like he's ruling, but make no mistake about it, the ruler of kings on earth. I need to be reminded of that. I'm a news junkie more and more in my life, and I know it's not good for me. So if you need to make an intervention in my life, you could get rid of some of the podcasts in my podcast feed. Oh, right? I care about the world around me, so I do want to be informed. I do want to love my neighbor, so I actually do care about those issues. So I'm overstating things. But I need to be reminded, and I know you do as well, that there is a sovereign who is currently sovereign. (laughs) And he is currently ruling and reigning, and he will return to consummate his forever kingdom but I need to not lose my ever-loving mind in the here and now. <laughs> Revelation is designed to do different things. It's designed to do that. Even on Easter Sunday. Maybe especially on an Easter Sunday. The day is coming when we don't even have to worry about corrupt... I, I, I need to move on. Okay, I'm, I'm going to lay down on the couch pretty soon. It's going to become a counseling session. He's the ruler of the kings, right? He, he's, he's, he's over all. He, this is good for us to remember. I need to be reminded of this. And so many times, and we're going to do a whole conference on this in October. I'm just getting ahead of myself. So it's going to be called All Things New. Because we need to be reminded that these things are certain and coming one day. So I'll just leave. See, that it just allows me to park that and leave it alone. We're going to move on because we don't want the ham to burn. Okay, so we're going to go to the next one in my notes. No more politics. Okay, we're waiting for that day. Okay, next, also in verse 5, Jesus is the one who loves us. He loves us. How about, even think of the, not really the contrast, but the extraordinary nature of it. The King of kings and Lord of lords who loves us. The one who rules and reigns over all the other lords. He loves us. And I love that. I love it that it's not just generic love either. It says he loves us. I think it's true. You can prove with the Bible that God has a general kind of love. A common grace kind of love. The the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There's that kind of love category in the Bible, but this isn't it. This isn't that kind of love. He's writing to saints and it says he loves us. And we can start connecting more dots. He loves us and so he's done certain things for us that he hasn't done for everyone just generically. No, he's talking to to believers. He loves us in a special, unique, saving, delivering kind of way. It's exceptional. It's personal. And this isn't a past statement. He he loves us. 
He currently loves us. We could say he loved us, past tense, and he gave himself up for us. That's biblical. But he's saying, no, even also remember right now, as the ascended one who claims his own, who is our advocate, who, who intercedes on behalf of his people, that one, he loves us. He cares for us. More than a child song, this is an adult truth. Jesus loves us. Romans chapter 8 verse 35, nothing can separate us from that love. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19, that love surpasses knowledge. It blows our minds. That love is a love that he has for us that's unmerited. He loved us first and we love him in response. First John chapter 4 verse 19, it is extraordinary love. Then, the greatest act of Christ's love that we typically think of. Let's keep going. Jesus is the one who also in verse 5 has freed us from our sins by his blood. In the Bible, in First John, for example, sin is law-breaking. Sin is lawlessness. So God has a law and Jesus summarized it. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes what God expects. And no one except Jesus has done that. So we've sinned. Well, here we have the Jesus who loves us, who gives himself up for us, has freed us from our law breaking and the penalty that we deserve. Freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. By what's symbolized by his blood, his atoning sacrifice, right? He's the spotless lamb of God, the just for the unjust in place of. He died, in other words. He shed his blood, not just as in he shed his blood. He died, symbolic of, or symbolized by, he shed his blood. The, The important part is, atonement's been made. So I, Pat Abendroth, don't deserve God to accept me. I'm a rebel at heart on my best days. And so are you, even on Easter, right? But he loves sinners. He loves us, gives himself up for us to make atonement, the just for the unjust, as Second Corinthians 5 says. It's, it's unmatched. That's why we say it's good news. That's why I can sleep at night. My sins won't be held against me because he loved me, freed me from my sins by his blood. If you are a Christian, a Christian is somebody who's not trusting in themselves, who's trusting in Jesus. So you put your trust in another. We put our trust in other people all the time. We put our trust in things all of the time. If we put our trust in Jesus, who lived a perfect life, he says, fulfilling all obligation, fulfilling all righteousness. He lays his life down for his sheep. And he promised if you trust in him, though you die, you'll live. Because he makes atonement, satisfies God's justice, God's law. But he's also raised from the dead on behalf of those who trust him. What a great savior. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
Then in verse 6, Jesus made us a kingdom. So the ones he loves, he made us a kingdom. Well, that would make sense because he's the Christ. It makes sense because he's the Messiah. It makes sense that he would do this for us because he will protect and provide and meet all of our needs and defeat all of our enemies. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 says, And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Oh, so for his kingdom, we're going to enjoy. We're not going to be oppressed by the worst oppressors, whether they be on high thrones or individuals. There's freedom. There's flourishing, reigning with him on the earth. We'd better keep going in verse 6. Jesus made us to be priests to his God and Father. So how about that? Christians are priests. Doesn't mean we wear backwards collar, backward collars and do those kinds of things. But priests are important. Think about the Old Testament. What does a priest do? A priest, let's just boil it all down and we can talk about different things. Let's boil it all down. They have access to God, right? On behalf of the people they represent. But the real takeaway is they have, they, they just go to God. Oh, yes, there has to be sacrifice. But you know what? Jesus is our sacrifice. So the ultimate high priest, Jesus, our mediator, gives us access to God. But I love the way he presses the point and just calls us priests. We have access to God. It's why we don't need priests. Because we are priests. He's made us priests. That's fascinating. Direct access to God. Serving God is what priests do. Well, we better move on, okay? Next question, and we're going to go faster now. It's going to be, so how should you respond? And if you don't know how you should respond right now, I'm not a very interesting speaker. Maybe that's true. I've been doing my best, praying that I could do better than my best. If this is who Jesus is... If this is who Jesus is, he makes us priests, he makes us a kingdom, we have direct access to God, we have atonement for our sins, all of these things are true about who Jesus is, there's only one like commonsensical response. And if we move on, we see in verse 6, second part, to him, to him who is the one who is all that we've seen him to be, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. In other words, what? He deserves what? He deserves worship. He deserves devotion. He deserves praise. He deserves you. He deserves you seeing him for who he is and being a loyal follower, a loyal subject. Yes. It just only makes sense that if he's that one, that he's the dominant one for good or for bad. He's in charge. But we know if he's the Messiah for his people, he's in charge for our good. We have a kind, generous, providing, caring, never taking advantage of Messiah King. He is the greatest. Therefore, he deserves our response to him be glory. Praise, worship, adoration, significance. I think the word, last time I checked, it has, has even literally has to do with weight. To him be weight. In other words, you give him all of the attention, the greatest affection. It goes to him. 
Revelation 5.13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So he's going for all realms and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's just getting, however I can get as many words around to this idea, I'm going to offer them up. That should be us. It's interesting, when you see angels in the Bible, that's the kind of thing they do. Isn't it weirdly strange and perverse that lots of us human beings have angel crushes? (laughs) It's like we worship angels. It's about as whacked out and crazy as you could ever possibly be. Because the angels, if they see you, I don't know if they do. I don't know. I've never been touched by an angel. I don't know, but I digress. If they see you fascinated with them, they're saying, what What is wrong with you? They worship him. They acknowledge him. To all of this, John says in verse 6, Amen. This isn't even John the Baptist. And he says, Amen. Church joke. I know, not very funny. Keeping my day job. This is the other John. He says, amen. Amen means I agree. Yes, that's right. It couldn't be more true. I couldn't be more with you. I I, I completely and utterly agree with what you've said. Amen. That's right. That's what he's saying. I give my hearty approval. I'm committed to what you just articulated there. It's true of him. Well, we'd better end with verse 7. We're answering the question, what are his future plans? Without warning, following the amen, this bold prophetic declaration in verse 7 says, Behold, he, the one we learned about, he is coming with the clouds, Probably symbolic. He's coming with the approval of heaven. Because the clouds are in the heavens. He's coming with the clouds. He's coming from heaven. He's coming with the approval of heaven. He is coming, which is the theme, the dominant theme in the book of Revelation. He's returning. But then it says in verse 7, and every eye will see him. So it's not going to be localized. It's not going to be in somebody's heart. It's not going to be in somebody's dream or so-called vision. When he comes, every eye will see him. Not localized, but universal. Every eye will see him. And then it says in verse 7, look there, even those who pierced him. From Zechariah chapter 12, it's actually a prophecy. Then it says in verse 7, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What do you suppose that means? Could be in reference. The the people are repentant. Because no doubt, the thought of him returning should cause us to say, If that's the case, I want to be on his side, not against him, not trusting in him, like Psalm 2 talks about. 
kiss the son, pay homage to the son, kiss his ring, if you will, as a king. This is Psalm chapter 2. Kiss the son, pay homage to the son, and it says, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. It's quoted in the New Testament quite often. So there's there's that kind of, there's going to be this this mourning that would come with the idea, but there's also the reality of his wrath is coming. And it seems that the translation there is trying to bring that out. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, talks about the wrath, the judgment of the Lamb. It is why Psalm 2 says what it says. You do want to pay homage to him, lest he be angry. Second coming talk, and you perish. You know, in Acts chapter 17, one of the things that the resurrection proves in Acts chapter 17 is, it proves that if you're trusting in him, you'll be raised too. It's good. But in Acts chapter 17, it also proves that he's coming again to judge people who don't trust in him. Yeah. It's in the New Testament, folks. Even the lamb. There's a bumper sticker. Some of you have seen it. it says, Jesus is coming again. And boy, is he, I'm not going to say the word in church on Easter Sunday. But you know, even a stop clock is right, right twice a day. And the second coming is going to be good for those who trust him. And horrific for those who don't. Questioners may question it, doubters may doubt it, mockers may mock it. But I love the way it ends. Revelation 1-7, even so, amen. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that the Lamb is the one who takes away our sins. Thank you that the Lamb is also the one who's going to bring justice on the earth. None of us want the justice for ourselves. But we do know that it's right. And we do know that when horrific crimes against humanity are committed and horrific things are done, we know that it's wrong. And we, we, we want justice. And we do know that one day justice will prevail. But our prayer is that many will trust in the Lamb so that they don't face the wrath of the Lamb. We who are Christians know that we're not better than anyone else. But we have found hope in forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb. And our great desire is that others would trust in Him as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.